this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. My name is Chad Hall, and I've spent most of my life circling paragraphs, poking holes in stories, and taking apart things that I can't always put back together. Whether it's in books or true crime documentaries, conversations or trending topics, I find gaps that most people breeze past. So this is a place to take my questions and to try to understand them. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I miss something or I change my mind. This is my podcast. It matters, but it doesn't. It's going to be one of those nights. I can already tell it. One of those nights where I record and I get two, three minutes into the recording and realize I sound like an idiot because I'm rambling. The beginnings, the beginnings of these things are important. That's what everybody wants you to, wants you to hear because that's how people decide if they're going to keep listening. It's true. But if you put too much damn pressure on it, you just ruin the whole damn thing. This is this is something I was rambling about in a previous recording that I scrapped. Rambling about beginnings. Because I'm a socially awkward person. And socially awkward people, people who are not super comfortable in public, people who are not natural extroverts, in fact, like me, are introverts. We worry a lot about certain aspects. And I don't know if this is true of everyone, but for me, what I think about a lot is the first things I say and the last things I say. Everything else in the middle, I don't worry about as much. But the first thing I say when I walk over to somebody and the last thing I say before they leave, I think a lot about those. And that bleeds into podcasting. So every time I hit play, I'm staring in my coffee cup. I hit play, not play, I hit record. And I think a lot about the words that come out of my mouth. I say something, then I go, oh, that's stupid. So I stop. I start again. And it takes me about two or three little false starts like that to really get into the groove. And it's not that what I do is any better in the take that I keep than it was in anything else before. It's just that I get to, there's a point of almost like a point of no, no return. If you get far enough, if you get enough momentum, if you make it five or six minutes without having to stop and think, 
then you might as well keep going. And I'm not there yet. It's only two minutes so far, and I'm talking about tea. And did I mention in this, did I mention that I had to rewarm the tea and how it's really neat that the tea companies that I use, which are more uh, healthy, I guess it's healthy, the right word. They're more sustainable companies and they're more concerned with the environment. They're concerned with making tea that is good for you. Well, one of the things that these type of companies do is they don't put staples on their tea bags, which means you can throw this sucker in the microwave and rewarm it. Because I have this terrible habit of making hot beverages, drinking about half of them, and then forgetting. And then two hours later, finding it and going, oh, and finished drinking it then at room temperature. Which is fine, but let's be honest, they're better hot. They're more enjoyable hot. It's like you could drink room temperature iced tea, but it's called iced tea. Because it's better when it's cold. You know, some things are just made for temperatures. I can't believe I'm talking about the temperatures of beverages. That's 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 how I'm going to begin this week. In my head all week, I'm running through things that I could possibly talk about. And what do I end up talking about? The temperature of my beverage. Yeah. This is why I think a lot about how things begin and how they end. Because <laughs> they're not all glorious. They're not all fantastic. It's been a strange week. You know, actually... Something really cool happened this week. Something that I wouldn't have put a lot of stock into if somebody else had told me about it. Which means that in my head, I think I'm going to tell you about this and you're probably not going to put a lot of stock into it. Which is fine. Because maybe it's something you have to experience for yourself to really believe. And no, I'm not talking about something supernatural. I'm talking about something that happens from journaling. I am about 40-something days into this 66-day challenge of journaling for an hour every day, and I'm starting to notice some things happening. In the artist's way, Julia Cameron, she, she says that things just happen if you do morning pages. The morning pages are very similar to what I do. Morning pages is essentially you're supposed to Sit down first thing in the morning and write, handwrite three pages of whatever. Like exactly what I talk about when I talk about free writing. It's basically what I do. I just don't do it first thing in the morning. I like to do it as a goal in the middle of my day. It's like my, it's the beginning of my work time. I don't mean work as in things I do for money. I mean work as in the things that I do that I care about. And for... I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while that I have been a a non-writer. I would say about a year. And I spent a lot of time on this novel that I had, this idea for a novel that I had. I, I spent, I would say, two to three years of hard work on this novel. And then before those two to three years, there were about seven years of kicking it around. And that, that kicking it around means many different things. For like the first two years, it was just like I had this idea and it was floating around in my head and it kind of started to grow. But then the second phase of that kicking around was actually writing ideas down, but not working on it consistently. You know, like I'd have a couple ideas for this book and I'd write maybe a day or two and I'd have like a lot of ideas. 
not necessarily doing the the structural work, but just like writing pieces that, oh, maybe this could go in it, maybe this could go in it. And then not touching it for months and then going back and it's just kind of touch and go work. But there was a period right before and actually partially through some of my really bad anxiety years where I was working on the novel every day. And the best period of that, I was working on the novel for about three to four hours every day. This was before I had the dog. But I would get up and I would walk to the Starbucks. It's the closest coffee shop to my house. It's about 10, 15 minute walk. I'd walk over there. I'd sit down inside. I'd get a coffee and I would work. And I would literally just sit there from about noon until 3, 3.30, depending on... Uh, there's a, an, an all-girls Catholic high school about four blocks from that coffee shop. And at about 3.30 or something around there, the school lets out and all of the girls come in. And, and you know, they're, they're just getting out of school. They're, they're young and they're excited, so they're loud. So I would lose my concentration, and that's usually when I would leave. But between the time that I got there, a little before noon until that 3 or 3.30 mark, I would be working on that novel solid every day, seven days a week, and uh, got pretty far. I don't remember how many words, but uh, you know, people always say, well, how close are you to the end? How close did you get to the end? <laughs> There's no way to answer that question because you don't know what the end is until you've written the end. You don't know if you're writing a 200-page book or a 1,200-page book. You don't know until you get to the end. So this is not possible to answer that question. But I got pretty far. And then uh, partially because of the anxiety and partially because of changes in my routine, I fell out of it a little bit. I fell out of the habit a little bit. And then I kind of succumbed to the difficulty of a novel. This is something that maybe people don't talk about often enough. Writing a book is hard. It's not hard because necessarily of the effort that it takes to put into it. It's hard because... In particular, it's hard in my case because it's my first attempt at a novel. It's hard because you don't know what you're doing. And you could read 50 books on how to write a novel. They're all going to tell you different things. There is no one way to write a novel. And even if you, you read enough about the great or at least the very prolific writers out there, what you'll also hear is that every book is different and they have to write every book a different way. So it's this continual process of not knowing what you're doing. And it can be overwhelming. And the book that I was working on is, I guess you'd say it's high concept. There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of connections, a lot of intricacies going on underneath. And it's a lot to, to handle, it's a lot to organize. And when you don't feel like you know what you're doing and you have all of this stuff, it at times it feels like you're trying to hold back a tsunami. You know, you just can't. It's water. It's going to get around you. And I think I just, at a certain point, uh, it was easy to not do it. And then I, I think I let the fear take take over me. This fear that, uh, you know, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab my journal right now. Because I wrote down some of the fears today. Because I was thinking about this book today. And here's just like top of my head. These are the fears that I had that I, st that I still have about this novel. 
the reason that it's kept me away from it, the reason I haven't gone back to it. I'm scared that it's bad, it's boring, it's out of control, that I don't know what I'm doing, that I don't know what the book is, that I have to rewrite the whole damn thing, that I'll forever be rewriting the whole damn thing because I don't know when I'm done, that I won't know when I'm done. I'm scared that it's pretentious. I'm scared that it's childish. I'm scared that it's ridiculous. You notice that there's a lot of things in there that contradict each other. And that's when it's there's some sort of unreasonable fear going on, right? It's pretentious. It's childish. In a way that, you know, as far as writing style will go, those are about as opposite as you can get. can't be both. It can have aspects of both, but it can't be both. So it's just this fear of, it's the fear of doing something that sucks, really, right? We never have the fear of completing something. We never have the fear of doing it. We have the fear that it's going to suck. That's the real fear. And sometimes it will. That's the truth. We can't lie to ourselves. Everything that we we sit down to make, especially when it comes to writing, it's not going to be good. There's so many novelists out there that threw novels away. Because they sucked. And then, there, of course, there's a, there's a lot of stories of writers who wanted to throw things away and uh, they shouldn't have. If, for example, I think it was Breakfast of Champions. Kurt Vonnegut threw Breakfast of Champions away and then later at some point decided, eh, it's publishable and published it. And uh, Franz Kafka, everything we've ever read by Kafka was supposed to be burned after he died. But I think it was his friend that he left in charge of his estate. Couldn't do it. So he published it all instead. We wouldn't know who Kafka is. We wouldn't have Kafka. We wouldn't have Kafka-esque. That wouldn't be a word. We wouldn't have those works. We wouldn't have the Metamorphosis. The book about Gregor Samsa, who becomes a beetle. If what he wanted to be done was done. Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, and multiple times had his friends burn things that he had written. Like he wrote some big treatise on the law, and then he had them burn it. And he was still alive. It wasn't like burn this after I was dead. He just knew he couldn't do it himself. So he had them burn it. But I mean, you have to wonder with, with someone who's as influential in economics as Adam Smith was and is, what, what, did, we, what did we lose by not hearing his thoughts? On the law. This is a man who was a moral philosopher, the teacher of moral philosophy. I imagine what he had to say about the law was probably pretty damn interesting. So let's go back to why I ended up down in this little this little detour here. The novel was overwhelming and I was scared. Still, I'm still it still scares me. I don't think it'll stop scaring me until it's done. So I've I haven't touched it. I think it's been about I want to say it's been, yeah, it has to be about two years because I haven't touched it since before I had the dog and I've had the dog for a little over two years. So at that point, I mean, it's it's pretty much dead. You're away from something that long. You know, the chances of getting back into it are slim. The reason I'm going to get back to where we started, I promise, but the reason it's hard to get back into something is because there's a certain mindset, you know, there's a certain voice. So you can, if you're, follow, if you're away long enough, you lose the voice. 
And well, what was the voice? You know, how was I writing? I've done that before. I've gone back to something and start writing after a point where I had left off and then looked at it afterwards and realized, oh my God, this sound like two different things. Because it was written by two different people, essentially. And the other thing about it is there's so much stuff, especially with something like a novel, that you keep in your head. These connections and things that you keep in your head that if you step away long enough, those are gone. You know, they're moved out of the working memory. So you go back and you're, you, there's like maybe some symbolism that you were doing that you don't remember. So now you don't can, now it's inconsistent because you don't continue it. Or there's something that you were hinting at in an earlier scene that was going to come to fruition later, but you don't remember that. So it never comes to fruition because you don't remember that that's what you were doing. It's very hard to pick up something after, I'd say even after a month, but after a couple of years, pretty damn impossible. Unless you had a first draft. If you had a complete first draft, I could see going back and picking it up. And even then it might even be a good thing because you're so detached from that first draft that you can really polish it and do something with it. But if you haven't got to the end of the story at least once, if you haven't completed the arc, good luck. So one of the things that Julia Cameron talks about with morning pages is she says that by doing these morning pages, things just start to happen, which pretty much means a whole bunch of nothing, right? What does that mean? It's a whole bunch of nothing until it starts happening. And then you realize, well, okay, I know why she said it like that, because you can't really, can't really describe it. Maybe because it's different for everyone. So since morning pages is so similar to the free writing that I do, when it started to happen, I made that connection to what she said. And I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I'm going to tell you what happened. That's kind of the whole point of this whole damn story. But it was, I, I think it was Wednesday. I was doing my normal, uh, my one hour free writing session in my journal. I was out in the backyard. I've been trying to sit outside more and enjoy the day. I got to the end and actually I didn't even get to the end. I was almost near the end and I caught myself staring off into space. I was staring off into space because uh, I had had a very terrible night of sleep the night before. I think I got like five, four or five hours of sleep. So I was kind of dazed all day and I was spacing out. And here I am with the notebook in front of me, pen in hand, and I'm staring off and I remembered something. And this might sound silly, but I forgot that this was a mode of writing. This idea of staring off into space was a mode of writing. I had forgot that. I had really those two years away from the novel, I hadn't really been doing much writing at all. Maybe a, a random blog here or there, but just like no writing really at all. And I kind of forgot what the experience of writing was like. So here I start doing this free writing. And in my head, because it's happening every day and, you know, I'm burning through so many damn pens and notebooks, that that started to feel like writing, but like writing as in all of writing, that this was the only form of writing. But when I was staring off in a space, I remembered that every other time in my life that I'd written anything, that it involved a lot of me just sitting there and staring off until something came to me and then putting it on the paper, which is very different than the free writing because the free writing is about keeping the pen moving. It's one hour of momentum. Just keep going. Don't worry about what comes out. 
But this is more like um, music, more like composing. You stare off and then you get a pretty good bulk of the sentence or sentences or even just sometimes an idea. And then you're putting that down and then you're waiting for more. It's it's almost, to use a metaphysical term, it's almost like channeling. This is why I think people believe so strongly in the idea of like the, the outside muse and the, the outside genius or divine inspiration. But what's really happening is you're, in my opinion, your subconscious and your conscious mind are trying to communicate. Messages are, are coming forth from from the archives, so to say, or not even the archives, but from the, from the mailroom, you know, from the from the steerage on the boat, from the lower decks. They're coming up, and you're catching it, and then you're putting it down on the paper. So, in realizing that, I decided, you know, what I'm going to do is after I finished this, like I said, I was only about 45 minutes into the free write, so I still had 15 minutes left. I'm going to finish this 15 minutes because that's my dedication for 66 days to do this for an hour. When I finish that, I'm going to sit out here for another hour. But instead of doing what I've been doing, I'm just going to have the pen in my hand and I'm just going to be here. And whatever comes to me, I'm going to put on the page. I'm going to go back to that composing style for this second one-hour session. I didn't have high hopes, I'll be honest. It had been a long time. I didn't really... I didn't have anything on the top of my mind, especially after doing an hour of free writing. I didn't have anything pressing on my mind. And I just kind of sat there. And then I had this, not even an image. I had the words of an image. And what I mean is I wasn't seeing, I wasn't imagining something in my head. I just had these words and the words happened to be of an image. It was, uh, the birds are ugly, but I feed them anyways. And I was like, that's so weird. Why is that in my head? What is that? There were no birds in front of me. I wasn't thinking about birds. I wasn't seeing birds. Certainly wasn't feeding birds. I hadn't been feeding birds anytime in recent years. I don't know where it came from, but I wrote it down. I wrote it down. I changed it a little bit. And then after I wrote it down, I lift my eyes up and boom, I had another line and another line. And within 10 minutes, I had a complete poem. And that's very strange for multiple reasons. Number one, because I got 80% of the way through it and I had to, and the line stopped coming to me and I had to say, what am I saying here? Because I really didn't, these words were just coming and I didn't know even what I was talking about, but they were all cohesive. I just didn't, I had to sit and read it to figure out what I had been talking about. Because these things really were just coming up from the subconscious. And then after reading that, I was able to close the poem out. But it's also strange. I said it was strange for multiple reasons. also strange because I haven't written poetry in a very long time. A very long time. And uh, it's so strange for that this poem to just surface. And even in the moment then... I thought about, you know, what I just said now. This must be why people believed in divine intervention, because that thing just came to me. I didn't consciously make that happen. I didn't, you know, the, aside from like the four lines that end it, I hadn't put any conscious thought into the construction. You know, and this is just a rough draft of a poem. This is not a 
perfected poem. You know, there's going to be many, many versions of it before I feel like it. it's where it needs to be. But to just get that chunk was strange. And in the moment, I connected it immediately to the free writing. And the way I reasoned it, and the way I still reason it, is the purpose of the free writing is to break down that sensor. A sensor that tells you, this is good, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is good. The whole purpose of that is to just be able to write everything that comes out of your mind without that little asshole judging everything. Well, what I reason is, then after turning that guy off for 40-something days, that that must be building some sort of bridge between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And that eventually when the bridge is built well enough, things start to cross. So all of a sudden, boom, I have a poem. Why? Because my subconscious mind might have been working on that. Who knows for how long it had been working on that. But it had no way to send it over before. But now that I had built this bridge, even though it's new and flimsy, it could still come across. I know this sounds weird. So I, this is why I said earlier, like it's, it's something that you can't even put words to this to make it believable or to make you really understand it if you haven't experienced it. But that wasn't the only thing. That wasn't the only incident. If it had just been that, I would have just chalked it up to luck, to be honest. Hey, I was lucky. I got a poem. Cool. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it. It's not like I just publish poems randomly. So then today, I was outside, and I was doing the same thing, finishing up my free writing session. And one of the things that came up in my journal was how frustrating it was not to be able to write when I wanted to write. And what I mean is compose, do purposeful writing. I've really been wanting to do fiction, but I don't have a complete idea. I have many little pieces of ideas, like here's a character, but I don't have a story for the character. Or here's a setting, but I don't have a story that I want to happen in the setting. Or, you know, you have pieces, but you don't have a full thing. And you can work to develop those, of course. I'm not saying that you can't. I just don't feel like I have pieces that fit together. Not right now. And it was frustrating because I knew that if, like before, when I was going to Starbucks every day, if I at least had this full idea I could be working on something. And maybe it's not the thing that ends up being complete. You know, maybe I end up writing a different book and that one falls by the wayside, but at least I could be working on something. At least I could be fulfilling that desire. And then it kind of hit me like, you know what? I do have one. I have that, that novel that I was kicking around. And yeah, it might not be something I can complete. It might be way too long. I might have lost it. I might be digging up bones here. But at least it's something I can work on. At least it's something I can feed that. At least I could get the exercise. I could get my chops back. Because writing is so much, it's so much like exercise. You get out of shape. So at least I could get back into shape. And the more I thought about that, the more I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. So I, after I finished the free writing session... I grabbed a couple index cards and let's just see if I have any, do I have any thoughts about this book that I haven't thought about in a very long time? And I filled out an index card. 
and I filled out an index card, and I filled out an index card. And by the time a few minutes had gone by, I had about 10 index cards. These are four by six index cards filled with ideas, new ideas or new understandings or new interpretation of this book that had been buried in the dirt for two years. And that's, it's so strange because the, the moment I started thinking about it, the moment I put that fear aside, the moment I said, you know what, it doesn't matter. The moment I accepted that I could be doing this work for absolutely no reason except for the exercise of writing. The moment I digested all of that, it was like I picked up the book from where I left off. I didn't forget anything. And all those little connections and all of those little things that I assumed were gone, they were still there. I don't know how. It's like they've been pulled out of the cryo chamber. And what that made me think of was Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. She has this very audacious idea in that book. And the idea is that ideas are, I don't know how to say it as well, uh, essentially that they're living things. That there are these ideas of stories that uh, they float around and they look for people who are willing to bring them into the world. She says that she believes that, she actually believes that. I think it's metaphorical. I think even she believes it's metaphorical. But if she doesn't, that's fine. You know, whatever. But I thought of that. I thought, like, did that idea just, like, chill and wait for me? No, you're the one who's going to do this. And it doesn't mean, once again, that I'm going to complete it or whatever. But did it wait for this chance to come back again? You know, obviously, I don't think it's a conscious <laughs> a conscious behavior on the part of an idea. But I did think about that because it was so strange. And it's the journaling. There's a, I think his name is Steve Tomlinson, the TED Talk from like 10 years ago. And he mentions Julie Cameron in it. He mentions the idea of journaling. And one of the things he says is it connects things. It's like you're going out there into the world and you're collecting all this stuff in your head. You're following your passions, you're following your interests, you're following your curiosity. And then when you sit down to journal, without even trying to, it just all kind of like spurts out onto the page. And when that happens, they're they're colliding, they're connecting. You know, you, you didn't watch that documentary thinking about that album. But now that you're talking about that documentary, the album pops into your mind and now you're writing about both of them and realizing that there's a connection there. And that only in my experience, only happens in two places, journaling and conversation, which essentially I think are the same thing. I think journaling is a conversation with yourself, but you're taking things, you're taking ideas, you're taking thoughts, and you're bringing them into the world. I talked about this before, that you have to bring the ugly lump into the world. It's the same thing that's happening here. The moment you're bringing these thoughts about this, in my fake example here, about this documentary, and it takes shape. Now that it has a shape and you can see it, you can go, oh, that's similar to this. But if it didn't have a shape, you wouldn't be able to do that. If I tried to abstractly explain to you what an apple was, but you had never seen an apple, I didn't have an image of an apple, and you couldn't feel an apple, you know, like you had no tangible connection to an apple. You just had an abstract idea of what apple is. You would be unable Mostly for the most part, to connect an apple to anything else. 
But the moment I handed you an apple, you'd be able to go, oh, it's kind of like a pomegranate, or it's kind of like an orange, or it's kind of like a pear, because now you have the shape. But without the shape, it's really hard to do that. That's why speaking in metaphor and analogy is is so common, because you can only talk about the abstracts of something for so long before it doesn't connect, because there's nothing tangible to it. So we talk about things and we say, well, you know, uh, what I'm trying to say is it's like this. It's like driving a car. It tastes like chicken. It doesn't really taste like chicken, but if I say it tastes like chicken, at least it gives you something to jump off from, right? You say it tastes like chicken, but it's a little tangy here. Now you have an idea of what I'm talking about. But if I just tried to give you abstract ideas of the taste without connecting it metaphorically to something else, you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. This is one of the reasons that I have so much respect for philosophers, because they're taking these ideas that are completely abstract, especially if you go back to the Greeks, they're talking about things that like nobody else had talked about before, at least not that we have written record of. And they're able to make it into language that people still today get value out of. And a lot of that is through the use of metaphor, the use of bringing shape to things. I'm sure Aristotle would love this conversation. Me talking about shape is just another way of saying forms. He believed that the the world is full of universal forms. It's an interesting topic, and it's a a detour, but I feel like I can't just mention mention that without explaining it. The universal form is like the idea of the perfect X, you know, the perfect whatever, fill in the blank. So, for example, why when you look at 10 different chairs that are 10 different styles, do you know that they are all chairs? Even, you know, like you'd say, well, the chair is the thing with a back and it's got four legs. But if somebody made a chair with three legs, you'd still be able to look at it and go, it's a chair. It's a chair with three legs, but it's a chair. And Aristotle said that that was because there's a universal form. That there's something underneath all of the knowledge that we have that we all understand. That there is a perfect idea in everybody's head of what a chair is. And that because we have that perfect form or idea of a chair, that when we're presented with 10 different things, 10 different types of chairs, even one that has three legs, we can put it up against that form and go, oh, it's a chair. It fits pretty much into this category. And I think that's in a, to a degree what's happening when we bring ideas into the world, especially if it's for us a new idea. It needs a form because until it has that form, it can't be, it can't be used. It's just this perfection, you know, this, this dreamy perfection. You're dreaming of something, this perfect idea, this perfect movie, this perfect recipe. But when you cook it, maybe it's not so good. Or maybe it needs work, but you can only work with it after you've made it. So I'm starting to see that that's one of the things that journaling does, is it brings the form. It's mangled often. (laughs) It's this terribly malformed child, but it can be fixed. It will grow. You know, it will it will work out. It's got crooked teeth. But with time, the teeth will straighten. It's got lumps and bumps and dents in its head, but those will work out. 
is a strange, strange thing to explain because it is in so many ways metaphysical. It is something supernatural. Really think about that. Think about the idea that a person can sit and create a world. They can create characters that come to life for us. Whether it is in a book, a movie, an album, a video game, there's something extraordinary about that process. Something that's not tangible. It's common, so we don't think a lot about the fact that it's not something tangible and practical. But the idea of creating is actually highly impractical. It's also highly improbable. What are the chances that they're going to... Look at all the books on the shelves. What are the chances that there are this many ideas for stories? And think of all the ones that haven't been written. It seems highly improbable, but when you actually look at the numbers, it's quite probable. It happens all the time. That's why we we don't acknowledge how paranormal it is. I'm using these words in the actual the senses of their roots. Paranormal, you know? Not normal. Supernatural. More than natural. Metaphysical. You know, like, these things are not... The creative process is not meat and potatoes. And I don't mean it just in the sense of the arts. The fact that people invented automobiles, electric automobiles, that we've shot things into space, the things that people have figured out in physics, the things that people have figured out about germs and viruses, the fact that we have a pretty good idea of how the natural world works, that we understand a lot about genetics. All of these things are highly improbable from a practical standpoint. Human intelligence is not the norm. All the other living creatures on this world don't have the ability to do these things. There are no dogs building scuba tanks. There are no fish creating hang gliders. They don't have that type of intelligence. So we are an anomaly in that sense. So don't underestimate. When somebody tells you something about the creative process, that sounds woo-woo. Because what you're doing is you're forgetting the fact that the creative process is woo-woo itself. It's weird. It's channeling spirits in a way. It's reaching into it's reaching into the unknown, reaching into the void of non-existence and pulling something into existence. Think about that. And don't take it for granted. I think when we when we take that for granted, then we're not humbled by it anymore. We're not humbled to be a part of the process of it anymore. And when we are no longer humbled to be a part of that process, then it's really easy to be afraid. It's really easy to not do things because we protect ourselves because it becomes it, it becomes about us. But the creative process isn't about us. The creative process is about the thing that is being birthed. We're a tool in that process. So we have to realize the extraordinary nature of it in order to be a part of it. And I didn't remember that. I don't know if I ever knew that. This book's sitting there for two years. 
two years I could have been, even if I was overwhelmed, even if it was sucking, even if I was doing terribly, two years of work I could have put in. Two years of learning. I, I could have two years more experience on how to write a book. Even if I wasn't getting any closer to the end, I'd still be learning stuff. Two years wasted because of fear. Don't give in to that fear because that fear is self-indulgent. Okay, I'm getting preachy. I don't know how I get on tirades like that. I honestly don't. Uh, one thing I want to say before I forget is, uh, you know, I've been doing one week. This will be the second week of recommending albums. I decided that it would be a good idea then to maybe make a playlist on Spotify where I was throwing these albums in so that they're all in one place. So I've done that. wasn't hard to do. I've only recommended one album so far. <laughs> but as I recommend them and I keep adding to them, that playlist, that playlist, if I could say the word, will continue to grow. So I'll put the link in the description. Go check it out if you're interested in that. If you're not on Spotify, you can at least click on the list to, you know, sorry, you can click on the link to look at the list and then replicate it in Tidal or Apple Music or YouTube or wherever, Amazon, wherever you're streaming music. Or maybe you're not streaming music and you just want to go buy some CDs and records. Maybe some cassettes. Honestly, I'm not going to lie. I miss cassettes. There was something damn cool about cassettes. I, I think that the closest and the most intimate that I ever was with my music collection is when they were on cassettes. And I was going around as a kid with a little Walkman or not even a, not even a Sony Walkman, you know, like some kind of imitation Walkman from like Kmart and those headphones with the damn poofy, the black poofy stuff over the headphones, like kind of like actually exactly what's over this microphone. My little uh, sound, my plosive guard there. Makes it so you don't hear me pop my peas. Yeah, so cassettes. I don't know how I got onto that. I don't know how I allowed myself to be detoured there. So let's get to the album. I ran across, I don't know how. I've been, I've been all week trying to remember how I discovered this band. This is a band uh, that nobody I know knew. And I think still to this day, nobody I know knows this band. So I don't know how I found them. I imagine maybe there was uh, some mention in an uh, in a magazine, or I was doing one of those things where you're you're looking at an album that you know, and it mentions something else, and you click there, you know, kind of like a almost like a Wikipedia rabbit hole, but through music. And I just stumbled across this band called Teenage Wrist. For all I know, people know who they are now. I don't know, but when I found them, see, it's 2021. Must have been about six years ago, 2015. When I when I discovered them, they only had one song. <laughs> they literally only had one song, and the song is called Afterglow. And I, I heard this song, and immediately I was like, I love this band. But they only had one song. So I used to listen to the song over and over again. And I think it was like a year later before they came out with an EP. So I only had like one song from this band and I liked that song so much that I remembered them. So when their EP came out, I devoured it. I was like, yes, more songs than this week. I happened to be in Spotify kind of moving around and 
Teenage Wrist came to mind. And when I typed in their name, I saw that they had an album from 2021, a brand new album. So I sat and I listened to the album and I loved it. Loved it. But then I went back and I listened to that first EP with that song, Afterglow. And that's that's the album I'm going to recommend. It's only like six songs. Maybe it's eight because it's an EP. But it's called Dazed. It's by the band Teenage Wrist, as I said. I I don't know how to describe the sound. There's a tiny bit of the Deftones in there. But it's, uh, I don't know, it has more of an angular alt-rock sound mixed with something dreamy. Like, uh... There's a little bit of, I hear a little bit of Jesus and Mary Chain in there. And I hear some other kind of shoegazy stuff like My Bloody Valentine or Galaxy 500, especially in the vocal melodies. But it's got the, it's got more of the, the guitars are more jagged and distorted. So it's this weird combo that just works so well for me. And every time I hear songs by them, they remind me of something else. They don't all remind me of the same thing, but they all remind me of something. But it's like something that I can't tangibly put my finger on, which is a really, it's a really kind of, it, it fits that dreamy vibe because there's a dreaminess to that. Like this reminds me of something, but I don't know what it is. And then you listen to another song, you're like, this reminds me of something else, but I don't know what that is. I don't know. I really like the EP. I hope you like it. Listen to it. And if you like it, you might as well just, if you want a twofer, go listen to their new album. I think it's called The Earth is a Big Black Hole or something like that. If you look up Teeny Dress, you'll find it. And I'm starting to ramble. My throat is dry. My mouth is dry. I'm losing momentum. I'm glad to see that you guys are enjoying this format. I mean, theoretically. <laughs> you know, all I have to guess from is watching the numbers. And as the numbers go up. I assume that means I'm doing something right. I'm going to do this anyways. Whether it's right or wrong, because it's right for me. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll be back here next week together. I hope. This is the podcast version of It Matters But It Doesn't. You can also read my blog at itmattersbutitdoesn't.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast because you find some sort of value in it, then you can find a link in the description of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you when I see you.